Hello, I'm Zev Yaroslavsky, and I'm director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. And I also serve on the Board of Trustees at Zocalo Public Square. Zocalo's mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. They publish original writings and convene events like this one. Everything is free and everyone is welcome. So welcome to today's discussion, Can Boyle Heights Save America? I grew up in Boyle Heights on 724 North Breed Street, actually. I went to Sheridan Street School. My sister went to Hollenbeck Junior High and Roosevelt High School. My parents ran a progressive Jewish school in City Terrace and supported the election of Ed Royball, the first Latino city councilman in modern Los Angeles. It was a culturally thriving community fueled by an unparalleled diversity. It was and is a neighborhood made up of working people, who were politically active and for whom personal relationships meant everything. While Boyle Heights is not a wealthy neighborhood, it has always been rich in community and political activism, but it has also been overlooked in so many ways. Today's conversation and George Sanchez's book about Boyle Heights seek to delve into the contours of this beloved place. I'm glad to introduce our moderator for this conversation, Hector Becerra. Hector is the city editor for the California section at the LA Times, where he started his career as a reporter in 1999. He has covered everything from wildfires to crime, to Latino cultural trends, and many other things. He became city editor in 2014 and was born and raised right in Boyle Heights. You're in for a wonderful conversation. And now, over to you, Hector. Thank you, Supervisor, uh, and thanks uh, Zocalo for having us here. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to, to Professor Sanchez and to Josefina Lopez. Uh, you know, I'm a native uh, of Boyle Heights, and uh, I wanted to start with a very, very brief story as, as a segue. Uh, when I was, an, I was an intern at the Nashville Tennessean in the 90s, and uh, people would ask me where I was from, and I committed what had to be a cardinal sin if you're from the east side. I lied and I said that I was from East LA. I didn't say I was from Boyle Heights. The reason was, you know, Chich Marina just had born in East LA, even had a hit song, and I didn't think anyone would know Boyle Heights was. Uh, a, nearly a generation later, that's changed a lot. And Boyle Heights is now basically a muse for so many people, for activists, you know, who are fighting against uh, what they see as incursions from the outside that are going to undercut the working class. Uh, that has lived in Boyle Heights in the turn of the, ninth, the 20, 20th century. Um, for artists, for street vendors, it's, it's, a, it's a neighborhood that's a place, but it's also an idea. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask uh, George, you know, maybe for starters, let's talk about the boundaries of Boyle Heights and, you know, how have they, what are the boundaries of Boyle Heights actually tell us about how the city fathers and the people who developed Boyle Heights actually regarded this neighborhood. Sure. Um, well, uh, the most obvious border is the Los Angeles River, which separates Boyle Heights from downtown Los Angeles. And it's been uh, a border for Boyle Heights for a very, very long time. Um, and uh, it, it's really the building of bridges over that river that allowed Boyle Heights to be connected to the rest of the city. On the eastern end, there's Indiana Street, which marks when you leave Boyle Heights and enter the county of Los Angeles, leave the city of Los Angeles. That's actually been a border since the original Pueblo. Um, and it's the north and the south boundaries that have changed over time. Um, uh, the north 
a boundary, uh, the division between Boyle Heights and Lincoln Heights used to be a passageway from the San Gabriel Mission to downtown LA. Now it's mostly formed by the 10 freeway separating off parts of Boyle Heights to the north where USC Medical Center, where Ramona Gardens is. Um, and then in the, the southern part, uh, the five freeway now does the same thing, separating Boyle Heights from uh, what is the real boundary with Vernon. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so they've changed over time because uh, obstacles have been put in the way or things that brought people together like bridges have been put in place. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but uh, it's really been uh, quite fluid over most of the time, but the river stays as I think the still the most important boundary. Yeah, yeah I was thinking about, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I wrote a story many years ago about the East LA accent, and I met this woman named Frances Flores, and her last name was Flores, but she was actually half Japanese, half Sherman. Her, she had been adopted by Mexican uh, parents after being abandoned. And she was talking about her Chicana accent. And she said sometimes she would hear her own voice in, voice, in voicemail and she was surprised like, that she sounded like, in her words, like a Mexican. And she gave me a quote that I thought was actually very profound. She said that she used to wonder about why she had this accent. She was really tickled by it and people would ask her about it. And she said, her conclusion was, I think wherever you were brought up, that's who you are. Josefina, who, who are you because of Boyle Heights? And who are people because of Boyle Heights? Of, of their, their connection to Boyle Heights. Well, that's a wonderful segue. <laughs> when you actually interviewed me for that article. Now I remember. Because I said that I had an accent, but I had the opportunity to take it off and put it that's on. Right. It better. God. But I could actually, because I'm an actress and I have training, right. I could actually modulate my accent and it could be right. And you can tell, you know, but I could go, hey, I'm from Boyle Heights, it's huh? Like, I'll stab you. No, kidding. Anyway, I'm, I, I'm trying to keep it, I'm trying to behave here. But yeah, okay. Boyle Heights, you know, really does shape you. Uh, I grew up, you know, when it was predominantly Mexican-American, but I imagine that for so many people who love Boyle Heights, it really shaped them because there were so many influences here, not just Mexican-American influence, um, but also Japanese, Jewish, you know, Italian. And also there's this, this idea, there's resiliency and survival, you know? And so for me, I think uh, it taught me to be very creative. So I think I am Boyle Heights. In many ways, I am Boyle Heights because I am an immigrant. Uh, because I borrowed from so many different flavors and uh, experiences. I write about all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that where you grow up shapes you, uh, you know, and for me, the sad part was that a lot of people did, you know, they felt like they were stuck in Boyle Heights, like when I was growing up and they wanted to leave, you know, and for me, it was like, I don't think it's the place that dominates your destiny. I think you can choose how you want to live your life and you can still grow up in the barrio. Um, anyway, I have so much to say, but, but we'll start there. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about Boyle Heights and, you know, George, you wrote a book about Boyle Heights. Uh, uh, Josefina, you have a, a, a theater in Boyle Heights. And, you know, Boyle Heights gets a lot of attention. There's other, these other East Side neighborhoods, there's El Sereno, there's Lincoln Heights, but there's East LA, you know, good old, good old, good old East LA. A couple of years ago, uh, you know, I, we made at the LA Times a, a conscious decision to write about, we're gonna write about a place in Boyle Heights, in Lincoln, in, I'm sorry, in the East Side. We decided to write about Lincoln Heights. And part of my reasoning as an actual native of, born, uh, of Boyle Heights was that we write a lot about Boyle Heights. It gets a lot of attention, but there's a reason for that. George, why? Why 
does, I mean, you, you actually lived in Boyle Heights for about five years. Your family did. You still had connection to the east side. You grew up really in South LA. Why does Boyle Heights pull at people? I mean, what, what is it, what's different about Boyle Heights from these you know, cultural cousins like Lincoln Heights and El Sereno and East LA? Well, I think for most of its history, Boyle Heights has been a welcoming place uh, for immigrants and really from anywhere. Um, and that has distinguished it, I think, over time. Um, immigrants come everywhere in Los Angeles, but for Boyle Heights, it's, that's been a, its marker. It's kind of the, the entry point. And it certainly was for my family uh, that came in the late 50s. Um, on top of that, uh, it's been a target for uh, downtown interests and for the elite of LA because of that. It, you can see it basically from any downtown office. Right. Um, and therefore, the area around, starting in the flats, but basically through Boyle Heights, has been a target for redevelopment, uh, for getting people removed, for freeways, for public housing. That's led to people in the community really organizing to protect themselves um, and to have a, a counter influence in Los Angeles from the unions to the community service organization to Mothers of East LA, to Homeboy Industries. All of those organizations uh, organized to protect themselves and the people of Boyle Heights in different ways at different moments. And that, that you know, Josefina was mentioning resiliency. Um, there's resiliency and there's organization that has been longstanding. That tension with the central city has, I think, been uh, best characterized between kind of downtown interest and Boyle Heights over and over and over again. Um, and so I think that people get pulled back to that kind of uh, community. It really does feel like a community where you care about your neighbors, where you actually can walk the streets and, and interact through the businesses through, through in a variety of places in Boyle Heights. So, so I think that's a, a, you know, parts of that are shared with other parts of East LA, but not all of it. Boyle Heights seems to have all of it um, in droves. Right. It's, I, I, but I want to point out, yeah. though, that for the longest time, nothing was written about Boyle Heights except drive-bys, about the drive-bys and the crime. So I love it that Boyle Heights is getting all the attention because a lot of us worked to try to put the attention in Boyle Heights on the positive. Right. Uh, you know, I became a, a, an activist in Boyle Heights because I got tired of only seeing stories about drive-bys on the five o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news and that was it. So I wanted to challenge that narrative and, and basically say, oh no, you know what? what? Why don't you report world premieres of films, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, plays, of amazing things that are happening in this community. The things that I grew up with that I, I mean, that, that I wanted to grow up with, but mm -hmm. the things that we're producing now um, and you know, and the reason, yeah, the activism, I think we feel very empowered. Um, you know, when I, when I tell people, look, the CSO was, I grew up with CSO, I, you know, I wasn't involved with them, but the fact that Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez met there and they started their activism there. And then there's brown, a history of brown berets and there's just so much activism. And a lot of the people that were kicked out of the Chavez ravine, all the communists, you know, so it, it has an incredible rich history of social justice. It does, well, actually, and, and you know, one of the things about Boyle Heights, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the battles over gentrification, which is really a battle, with, whether people agree or disagree with, with the methods of some of the activist groups, you know, it, it's an effort to preserve something, to preserve 
something that's been that's not new. It's been there for generations from when when Boyle Heights was was called a melting pot. Um, and you know, if you pardon my Mexican, no neighborhood throws chingazos like Boyle Heights when it comes to even the perception, even the scent of, of gentrification. Um, Josevina, you started Casa 0101 in 2000. Um, do you think, do you expect that if you try to start that in 2017, 2018, um, you might've actually encountered some pushback? I don't and, think so. No, no, I grew up in the neighborhood. It's right. my home and then people know me. And the thing about it is, you know, like when someone comes as an outsider, they, right. they walk around as though they don't belong. They're scared. I walk like I belong because I belong. And I think when people know, uh, and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're from here. You're from the hood, you know, you're. Um, so the other thing too, is that I knew when I was 18 years old that something like this was gonna happen because you know what? When a city neglects a community uh, this neighborhood for so long, it got so bad that that's when the city started paying attention. So almost like it had to hit rock bottom for, for it to go up, uh, for a renaissance to happen. So I was very aware, even though I was eight, 18, that this was gonna happen. And also, you know, as an activist and a conscious person, you see how it's happening in every Latino neighborhood. You see how all these Latino neighborhoods are being gentrified. So right. both nights, we were just a matter of time. We were like, okay, you know what? Get ready people, because there's a Metro coming. And when right. a Metro comes, uh, the first stations, uh, the, the stations are always the first place to get gentrified. And, and I, you know, so I saw that coming. So that's why I wanted to empower as many people to, to write plays and poetry, whatever they could to just speak right. up, you know, and so we can own our, nar our narrative. So people know that we are here. Like you didn't come right. to discover us. This, you're not Columbus discovering, you know, like the natives who, who, who are not cultured. We have culture, we have our own self-expression and people coming in with their galleries, with whatever they're bringing, you're welcome to come in, but contribute to what's already here. This is not a blank canvas. There's a yeah. beautiful uh, montage of all these amazing things that have happened here and you can contribute, but you can't just whitewash it and, and pretend like, like we don't exist, like we don't matter. But that's one of the interesting things about Boyle Heights. If you like, you think about those old, you know, uh, uh, maps from from uh, the Dark Ages, where it's you know you've got the ocean and says yeah. you know there be dragons, there. Yeah. there be dragons, Don't right? Cross the and, river. <laughs> right, and sort of like the Alley River, it's sort of like that. There be dragons, you know, also known as you know Mexican Americans, like yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. There be brown uh, uh, people that are too angry, man. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't go there. But going back to that though, because this really is a perception. It's really kind of been a persistent one that Boyle Heights is dangerous. You know, even as people want to move in and people have moved in, there, you know, there has been gentrification. Uh, maybe more little by little residential where people are moving in and, you know, um, and, and, you know, it's not as noticeable as the businesses. People do move in. And yet this is a neighborhood that's been dogged for a long time by this perception that it's super dangerous. And that hasn't been the truth since uh, you know, maybe the mid nineties, right? I mean, do you think that that, George, do you think that perception that Boyle Heights is really dangerous has actually really slowed down gentrification and maybe some of the some of the some of the harmful effects of change that could happen. Um, to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, but I think that the the biggest change you know change has always happened at Boyle Heights. So um, if I don't equate gentrification to change, okay, change has always been happening, and mm -hmm. uh, you know the the biggest reason why. Uh, 
you know, gangs uh, and particularly the gangs of the late 80s and 90s went down in Boyle Heights is because of Father Boyle and Homeboy Industries. It had nothing to do with the LAPD. It had nothing to do with with the Hollenbeck Station. Uh, they've always been a presence there um, back to the Zoot Suit riots and so forth. Um, what is changing, and this is the big difference with other communities, is that more Latinos are coming back to Boyle Heights, having left it and gone to college and starting professional careers. So all of a sudden now, uh, at least this is what the, the latest uh, data says, is that you've got more middle class Latinos moving back to Boyle Heights, some of whom came from the neighborhood or came from East L.A., You've got, a, a, in some places, a little tick up in home ownership, because in a place that has 75% renters. You've got some young people who grew up in Boyle Heights who returned after college and started businesses. Some of them are coffee houses. Some of them are barber shops. Um, yes, the art galleries came in, and then they left. <laughs> they, they didn't have much patience with, with the community. But the Latinos seem to be staying. And that means that there's been pressure on the rental market moving up and there's been, um, you know, a slight uptick in some neighborhoods with home ownership. Um, the real question is, is Boyle Heights going to be able to re remain a place that low income recent immigrants can move into? Is that housing market going to maintain? And in particular, the place that I think is really um, one has to look at in Boyle Heights to look for that change is what happens south of the five. What happens around the Sears Tower? What happens at Riverwood? Those places are kind of the ripest for real transformation. There, there are forces at work that really want to change those communities. And the fact that the five freeway now divides the main part of Boyle Heights from those communities, I, that's what worries me. Um, so if you know, LA has not adopted uh, very favorable low-income housing policies that will ensure that there are more places in Boyle Heights and other places for um, uh, low-income residents. Plus, the city as a whole, which you've got all over Los Angeles, is you can't you can't stay in the place you grew up in. Like in most places in Los Angeles, if you grew up there, you're priced out of that. So they go looking around for other places to live. I think this is, is about city and county and state policy, but it's also about making sure that in Boyle Heights, we really talk honestly and openly about what is it to have a multi-class environment where low-income people could really have a place to, to live, where the entrepreneurship that's always marked Boyle Heights remains, but at the same time where we, we welcome back people who grew up in the neighborhood who went to college and want to contribute back into the neighborhood. Those things have to be worked out because I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Yeah, Josefina, you, uh, you know, you, you've been in, you've, you've never left Boyle Heights. No, I, I, I did. I, I lived in Paris. I've lived in New York, in San Diego, San Francisco. Uh, so I have, but I keep coming back. <laughs> right I guess what I, meant, what, I, what I meant, I'm going to say it myself. You, you never that's left. Like you never left it in your heart, right? But yeah. I mean, you've been there, uh, Casa Zero One, like I said, it's been, been there since 2000. Mm -hmm. How do you see Boyle Heights changing from a standpoint of, of the arts and culture, which we all, all of, us who, all of us who grew up there, we need. How do you see that changing without undercutting the working class fabric of Boyle Heights? Well, I mean, one of the things we do, you know, at our theater is we always try to make it affordable. 
and accessible because that's how you not gentrify a, a community is you always say, what can the residents afford? And right. what, what some of the residents want to see on stage. And that's how you make yourself relevant and part of the community. Uh, so that's what we do. Um, I do think there's an explosion. I, I can't take credit for it because, you know, self-help graphics. I think, I think what's so great is that self-help graphics moved to Boyle Heights. They were in East LA. So once you have self-help graphics on First Street and you have us, you have all, you have so many Chicano Latino artists, like it, within that like boulevard, you know, like, so I, I'm just excited at all the possibilities because now, you know, as a result of um, different organizations working together, um, we're, we're, you know, so many people are partnering up and doing so many projects. You know, we're starting to been producing musicals We've uh, launched the careers of a lot of playwrights, a lot of actors. We're the theater that gives the most opportunities to actors and Latino actors throughout Los Angeles. And so I, so I think that there's just this desire to tell our story, to finally be seen because we're sick and tired of Hollywood ignoring us. We really get that, you know, because I, I just thought there were no Latino writers when I was 16 years old. I thought, oh, they just need more Latino writers. And then I realized, no, we as Latinos will never be portrayed as the heroes or heroines. And I tell people, look, we are the heroes and heroines. We're the essential workers and artists are the essential workers of the soul. And we, we have to present ourselves as the heroes in our stories, in our art, in every expression, because we must, not, we must stop being the supporting uh, character in a white man's story. So Boyle Heights is the way, it's our stage. Boyle Heights is the way we say, no, this is where we win. This is our community. This is where we're the heroes and heroines of our story. Let me ask you a question. This is actually a total detour at this moment, but just to kind of mix it up a little bit. You have one, one last meal in Boyle Heights. That's it, you don't get a second one, but uh, Josefina, you cannot, you cannot pick Casafina, you can't. Josefina, no, I can't. So, so you, you, one last meal in Boyle Heights, just one. You never, you never get to go back again. Where will you have it and what is it and why? See, now and that's a question for both of you. But let's start with Josefina. I gave you my answer, but now it's between La Parrilla. They have this nopales and shrimp dish that I love. Or, but I probably have to go with uh, uh, Alan B's uh, combo burrito. <laughs> that probably, yeah, I'd probably go with that. It's unhealthy, but delicious. <laughs> wow, it's only, you're going to eat only one last time. my last meal, then, you know. Fine. Right. Meal. Uh, what, what are you, George? Uh, the biggest burrito, El Tepeyac. El Tepeyac? Well, because you could take it home and, and actually eat it over. It, it'll, long, it'll last as long as possible. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of like it feels like cheating a little bit there. But well. uh, <laughs> uh, now it's funny. Are there any places in Boyle Heights that I mean, I was thinking about the cemeteries. Boyle Heights has uh, a ton of cemeteries. I, I don't know that there's another neighborhood that uh, pound for pound has as many cemeteries as Boyle Heights. Um, what, George, what is the fact that Boyle Heights has so many cemeteries? What does that mean? What's the meaning behind that? We also have a lot of freeways, but the cemeteries, why do we have so many cemeteries in that one neighborhood? Uh, it's when the city was, was really first developing in the late 19th century. The city fathers wanted to put the cemeteries at the absolute outer reaches of where they thought the city would develop. And so they picked Boyle Heights as that farthest, outest, uh, farthest out re region. And that's why we ended up with the cemeteries. Um, but it, 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 you know, obviously they were wrong. Obviously the city developed much further and the, you know, in terms of housing and every businesses than they ever thought. 
Um, but at least in the late 19th century, everything then got put in Boyle Heights. Um, all the communities ended up buried in Evergreen Cemetery. You've got the Potter's Field in, you know, in Evergreen Cemetery. You've got uh, also city leaders, someone like Hollenbeck buried in Evergreen Cemetery. So um, it was seen as so ridiculous to think that the city would expand to the east and out to Boyle Heights. That's why the cemeteries are there. Um, and I think that that's, it gives you a sense of the, the problem with, the, with uh, vision. Um, city leaders tend not to be able to think very far in advance. And certainly people couldn't have imagined the Southern California region developing like it is now. Um, and they won't know what are the overall ramifications of building the subway system or the, the metro line as far as they are. What's going to happen to uh, to freeways and 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 the, both the danger that happens with them, the the destruction of communities. Uh, they enact policies and then they hope they're correct, but they're usually not, and it happens pretty quickly. So the cemeteries, to me, always point to the fact that um, city leaders could not have predicted uh, what where Boyle Heights would sit in relationship to the rest of the region. You know. Yeah, in the late 19th century. I find it fascinating, Josefina, I mean, actually, do you ever, are there any places, but maybe it's a cemetery, Josefina, but is there any place in Boyle Heights that you like to either drive through or just walk through that might actually surprise people? That's not necessarily a place that people expect. Is there a place that you like to visit? Yeah, I would say Hollenbeck Park. I, I love that park. It's so beautiful. You almost don't expect it in our neighborhood because... It's almost like we're not. It's almost like we're not allowed to have nice things, and that's also why I started a theater because I wanted to have really nice things in our community. I would say that, and also all the Victorian houses. I think on Britannia Street. Yeah. You don't expect that because you're like, what? There are houses like this. Like, it begs you to learn the history of Boyle Heights to ask. Wait a minute, how could we have these big Victorian houses here? Like, who lived here? Like, what what was happening? You know. So I would say those areas, just the, off the top of my head, those would be the two that I can think of. If I can contribute a place that a lot of people don't know about, and that's Tenrico Buddhist Church, right on First Street. I think it's one of the most beautiful houses of worship that I know. It was built in the 30s. Um, it has stayed there. Uh, the Japanese language schools continue to come there, even though the Japanese community is largely left. It comes back to that place. And for me, one of the most powerful stories of Boyle Heights history is that when the Japanese were, were incarcerated in, in, in camps during World War II, an African-American congregation, a small one down the road, took care of that space, protected the, the beautiful instruments that they had for, for music. And then they handed it over, basically, when, when the Japanese uh, returned after the war. Um, so for me, it's a pow it's it's a very powerful symbol of something beautiful, musical, uh, but also has this deep history of allegiance to the place and to people across across backgrounds. Essentially, it's a beautiful place, and they welcome people to come in and to look. Um, you know, if you're if you're ever there on First Street. Yeah, I mean, as, as an aside, I think uh, Otomi-san, uh, which is this kind of old Japanese restaurant, I think it's still there. I, and I'm blanking on whether it's, uh, I think it's on First Street. Yeah. It's on First Street. Yeah. And I, I went there many years ago and wrote about, wrote about it. And I hope that it's still there. I think it's still there. It's still there. Um, and it's amazing how, how uh, these places survive. One of the things that I also realized about Boyle Heights is, you know, 
there's still Japanese Americans who live in Boyle Heights. It's not, it's not the numbers of before, but I was a little surprised that uh, near Otomi-san, uh, I think off of Michigan, there were some apartments and I actually got to meet uh, these very working class Japanese immigrants. It was not a huge number, but there were some. They lived in these apartments. They were not, they're were, they were not well off. They were not second, third generation. They were immigrants. And, um, and if you look hard enough, you still see those sort of, uh, those sort of um, vestiges of, of the old, you know, uh, diversity of, uh, of, of, of the neighborhood. One of the questions that I want to ask you about, uh, George, and also, um, Josefina, one of the things that you know you notice about Boyle Heights, and I always notice about Boyle Heights, is it, there's a lot of apartments, but it's not a neighborhood dominated by apartments. It's actually a lot of single family homes, which gives it a different kind of feeling. Someone once described it to me as like a Mexican Mayberry. The fact that it's a it's a very renter heavy neighborhood, but a lot of them live in actual distinct homes. Um, seems to have actually given that neighborhood a real deep sense of ownership, even if they don't legally own the property. How has that served Boyle Heights, including during times of unrest, you know? Yeah, you know, when the riots happen in LA and I, people just assume that they happen in Boyle Heights and I'd always have to correct people and say, no, 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 it didn't happen in our neighborhood. I know because I was here. I was looking on my roof, looking to see if there were any fires because people cared. It's like, why would we destroy something that belongs to us? Even though it doesn't belong to us, this community, this is the, you know, for me, Boyle Heights is the one place that belongs to me. And I grew up, uh, you know, I was undocumented. So I came to this country, I was undocumented for 13 years. So I really felt like I didn't belong in the US. I didn't belong in Mexico that I really, I, you know, I didn't know who I was, but I knew that at least I belonged in Boyle Heights. So for me, Boyle Heights has always been my little Ellis Island my island where I belong, where people who are ostracized, um, you know, this is the place where we feel at home. And, and yeah, and, you know, eventually I call myself a Chicana and then, you know, and I go, no, no, I'm an American. But, but so for me, Boyle Heights has been the, like the one place where I feel normal and embraced. And, and then we said something about embrace that is Madre, right? That yeah, well, it's, it's, which by the way, the, I, I stole that from uh, yeah. one of my favorite reporters ever, Gustavo Ariano, who, who, by the way, happens to be on the live chat. We have a lot of local people that are on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gustavo, David Kippen, uh, some of the folks from the Boyle Heights Bridge Runners, Mike Parker from Cal State LA, Yesenia from the Boyle Heights Museum, and Denise from the African Americans in Boyle Heights. Thank you for being on this. Yeah, I mean, you kind of like, here's the thing about Boyle Heights. It's, you know, it's not, I like, I mean, Irvine's not what Irvine used to be, it's, but, but it's, uh, <laughs> It's, it's much more, and, and it's, it's a much more uh, diverse place than it used to be, but it's not, Bullets isn't, it's messy. It's not, it's not a master plan community. It's not, it's, everything isn't purely ge uh, geometric and predictable. It's very um, you know, there's not even parking, enough parking. Like this, this community was basically made with the idea that this was the community for the help and they would take the trolley into <laughs> the city. So there was not an, it wasn't made with parking involved, you know, in mind. And when we tried opening our theater, we couldn't open our theater because we couldn't get parking. And we had to get a parking variance in order to open a theater. So yeah, it's, it's todo un desmadre, pero it's our madre. <laughs> is, there, is there sort of a line where it goes from, you know, embracing the desmadre, the charms of the desmadre and kind of fetishizing it, saying like, well, it's like, you know, are we sometimes blind, you know, George, I'll ask you this, and then Josefina, are we sometimes blind to some of the problems in Boyle Heights, you know, or not, not blind so much, but we, we don't linger on them as much because, you know, it's, 
it's it's like your it's like your brother and your sister. They're yours. You love them. You know. Are, are there certain things that are that we should really be concerned about uh, that we sometimes kind of like don't think about too much? Well, um, you know, if you talk to a lot of the entrepreneurs that have been there for a long time, the businesses that have stayed, and you know, they're very concerned about uh, the lack of owner-occupied residences. So not just a question of having renters, but the question that the owner of the property lives on the other side of Los Angeles and sometimes doesn't care about the property itself. Uh, They're very concerned about that. So they actually would like to see uh, whether a place is rented or whether it's owned and occupied by the same person that, that, uh, you know, people who own property in Boyle Heights live in Boyle Heights. And that's a reflection of a different moment in time in which people left Boyle Heights and kept their their ownership. And then from far away, rented out things. And then that passed on to their children. One of the things that people have have talked about is, is people who own property living so far away and not really caring about the neighborhood. So, so I think about that a lot when I think about some of the issues that happen on particular streets with particular uh, families, particular kind of situations. That that's something that concerns businesses and people who want to who want to stay and, and sort of contribute to the neighborhood. So I think that's a that's a really that is an important thing that has to be talked about and, and needs to be discussed. I think there there is a sense that um, the community would benefit from more home ownership, but also in particular people who live nearby and cared about the neighborhood if they're owning property. The other thing that, um, you know, we opened a restaurant called Casa Fina and you realize that it's so hard to do business in Boyle Heights because of all the gang violence that used to be there or the notoriety of it or the over-policing of Boyle Heights because you know, like in Boyle Heights, there's only like, I think, I think two or three businesses with a full liquor license. And trying to open a restaurant, you know, we were trying to get an entertainment license, right? Because I wanted to have poetry nights, karaoke nights, have an opportunity for artists to have another venue to perform. We were not allowed to do that. One time we had a poetry reading that was so successful and we had the police tell us that, that we couldn't do that. And I'm like, wait, isn't poetry like freedom of speech? They're like, well, you need an entertainment license. And I'm like, and it was so hard to get. It took us like a year and a half to get an entertainment license and a full liquor license. The only way we were able to do it is because a lot of the community came to the hearing to show, to tell them, you know, that we're responsible people and we're doing it for the benefit of the community. Now it's, you know, like nowhere else in the, you have that kind of uh, policing. And I go, wow, like poets are dangerous, huh? Poets are dangerous. You like you can't just do poetry. We can't break out in poetry. Like what? You know, it's so ridiculous. So there's all these obstacles from parking to like not being able to get like certain licenses uh, that that really don't promote uh, businesses. You know, so the only people who can overcome all these obstacles are corporations. Like if Starbucks came, you know, they'd have all the money to overcome so many obstacles. But any person who doesn't have a great deal of money. Uh, would have to like spend the time that we did to have to rally people uh, to fight for things that in every, any other community you would easily get. So that's also what's tragic about Boyle Heights is that, you know, like I, I tell people that I had to beg 
to get a parking variance because they wouldn't give us one. And, and then I'm, I tell people, look, that's why there, there were 87 gangs in Boyle Heights because they don't need permits. But if you make us have to get a permit for every little thing that really promotes self-expression and dignity and like pride in ourselves, then you're making it impossible. Then that's why all these other forces that are dark, that are not inspiring thrive. You have to make it easier for artists just to like, you know, get, get their message out. And you know, like, I remember one time I was spray painting my own wall, right? right. And the police was gonna arrest me. Like they, and then they realized, oh shit, she's an, oh, excuse me. She's an artist, you know? And I was looking at them like, what are you gonna do to me? This is my wall, I'm trying to do art here. And, right. and, and so sometimes there's over policing. Anyway, I'll stop yeah. it. Although it's funny, it's interesting also like, you know, uh, Boyle Heights is now, I think it's the Hollenbeck station of the LAPD, unless something has changed. Did you get, I don't know if you guys know this, it's actually the most requested LAPD station for officers to transfer to. And I believe now it's like 90% like Latino. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know, call it an irony, but it's, it's, it's actually uh, the last few years that I checked, it was the LAPD station that had the longest list of officers trying to transfer into, into, into that station. I don't know, make, make what you will of that. Um, one question that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Roosevelt grad, you know, I graduated in 1990. Um, uh, and, you know, George, accepting myself, why do so many uh, cool people graduate from Roosevelt? Why do so many well-known people? Why, why was Roosevelt such a nexus, you know, in, in, in that area of influence, people who grew up to be really influential people? Why that school? Um, well, one reason was that for the longest time, it was the only option uh, in Boyle Heights. Um, and, and that meant that in an immigrant neighborhood where a lot of newcomers are coming in, this is the place for the children to really prosper if they were going to prosper right. and to be launched, essentially. And I think the kids that grew up at Roosevelt tended to have a greater uh, sense of the larger world because of growing up at Roosevelt, because of interacting with people, because they often um, were the ones that that brought American culture into their own families. They're the ones who influenced their families, but connected them with other families in the neighborhood. So I think that that had a profound effect in thinking through, you know, how am I gonna take off here in Southern California? How am I, how am I gonna contribute? So you have politicians, but you also have artists, you also have athletes, you have a whole bunch of people who were able to use Roosevelt as a launching pad into other things. It's not that there wasn't discrimination because there was at Roosevelt, there was a lot of, of, of t uh, issues and tensions over time, but it seemed to work as a community of uh, students for the most part, really able to, to be with each other. One of the things that I, I think is remarkable is that Roosevelt has one of the most active alumni groups that ever existed. Um, and so even after graduating from Roosevelt and often leaving Boyle Heights, these alumni groups would meet in other places. They would regularly meet in the San Fernando Valley or in Palm Springs or whatever. And so people had an attachment to having grown up at, uh, at Roosevelt. Um, and that made a huge difference. Uh, the other thing to look at, by the way, is the teaching core. If you see somebody's life story like Antonio Villaragosa, you know, he, he really talks about the, the impact that certain teachers had on him. Uh, 
invested in him, even when he had not done well. Um, and I think so you had individual teachers that made a difference in the lives of students. And there seems to be uh, a few that are always mentioned in every generation of students. I mean, uh, let me ask you a question, uh, Josefina. Uh, are there spaces in Boyle Heights that exist for youth to continue, kind of with the Boyle Heights pride? Places that like, that if you're a young person in Boyle Heights, you really need to check out. You know, even though you might think you know the neighborhood really well. Well, I would say Casa 0101, we have a youth program. Uh, we have free acting classes for children. We have uh, writing workshops. We have community making, you know, uh, a bunch, we have a bunch of programs. So check us out, casa0101.org. So that would be the one place you, young people can hang. That didn't exist. Right. I created the theater that I wanted when I was a child. So this is my gift to the, you know, community. Obviously there's the, you know, the, the uh, Hollenbeck Youth Center Right. Uh, for sports, you know, a lot of uh, boxers who won gold medals came out of there. Uh, no, I would say uh, those are the first two that come to me. And obviously, Roosevelt has a lot of programs as well. Yeah. Uh, George, I, you know, I remember I, I wrote a story many years ago, uh, or maybe it wasn't that many years ago. It was about the last, the person that I thought was the last Jewish person in Boyle Heights, a guy oh. named Eddie, Eddie Goldstein. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was the last Jewish person who was born and died in Boyle Heights. I'm not talking about people who moved after. Um, I read in your book that at one point there were eight remaining. Um, can you talk to me about not only the Jewish influence of, people talk about the, the in, in a kind of briefly, the Jewish influence on Boyle Heights, but also the African-American uh, influence, including in, in terms of like demonstrations and, and social justice issues in Boyle Heights. Sure. Um, so the Jewish influence goes way back to the early part of the 20th century. Um, and I think the key part of this is that it was a working class and middle class community um, that brought traditions from lots of different places. In particular for Boyle Heights, it brought a labor union tradition. So it's, it's, it, the Jewish migration is the major reason that the Hatters Union, the Carpenters Union, the Garment Workers Union were all kind of housed in Boyle Heights. It also brought a, a very deep Yiddish uh, radical tradition, uh, a secular Jewish tradition. So people talk about the synagogues and so forth, but it had a group of communists and socialists that really organized themselves around Brooklyn and Soto, um, were targeted by the LAPD in the 1930s. Um, you know, it has a very rich tradition. And as more religious Jews moved out of Boyle Heights in the 40s, what was left was the most radical of Jews staying in the late 40s and 50s. Um, uh, and really starting things like the Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born with Mexican uh, immigrants. Um, so it has a very interesting history, which is very different and under, under known, undervalued in the larger Jewish community of Los Angeles. The African-American community has been there for a very long time because it was one of the places that African-Americans could actually purchase homes, mostly in that Evergreen Cemetery area. Um, and uh, it uh, it always was an entrepreneur uh, community, starting businesses, it had apartment buildings, started by people who came off and started working in the railroads, which were not that far away. Um, over time, it changes a quite, quite a, uh, a bit. And, and in the later period, the most significant issue that really transforms Boyle Heights uh, residentially is the public housing units. Because uh, in the 50s and 60s in particular, 
Um, it is the it is one of the places that's available for both Mexican braceros coming out of the fields and for African American uh, working class people coming from the south. So Ramona Gardens, uh, Aliso, um, uh, all of the all of the public housing units end up having a real mixture of African American and Latinos. Uh, that actually worked together in things like the war on poverty efforts in the mid 60s. And so when the Chicano walkout leaders sort of look around uh, for strategies, and I'm talking about the students here, the high school students, they have interaction with uh, people who have uh, seen civil rights protests, they've seen the Watts riots, they are, they are thinking and acting in relationship to what they're seeing happening in Los Angeles as a whole, but they're also thinking in relationship to, to the kinds of rights that people have been demanding and protesting out of the war on poverty. And so um, the walkouts don't just appear kind of willy-nilly uh, from uh, Chicano activists, but actually um, it's, a, it's a learning process in the 60s as they move towards the walkout protest as a, as a form of getting the attention of city leaders. Uh, let me, I'm going to shift to uh, questions from the audience. And, and one question that I want, I'll start with Josefina, but uh, George, you can, you can chime in. Uh, without, we, don't have, we don't have to name names here, but, you know, uh, how do we hold local politicians accountable? I mean, obviously, you know, we've been failed, you know, allegedly by some politicians. Uh, uh, how do we hold them accountable? If you, if, if, this, is a, this is a neighborhood that, you know, some very strong activism, but it's also a neighborhood with a lot of, essential workers. They're working their butts off day and night. They, they, they're, they're taking care of the kids. If you're, if you're living in Boyle Heights or in pandemic, like a lot of these neighborhoods, you are juggling their education, trying to work, trying to make a living, um, not having a lot of time to go to like council meetings, maybe not even have the means to get to council meetings. How does a neighborhood like Boyle Heights hold politicians accountable? What do you think, Josefina, first? Well, I mean, first of all, like you protest, we go to the rallies and protest, and we also demand to go speak to them in person, speak to them as human beings. You know, I think why I've been successful with a lot of different things is because I always just say, you know, let's, let me talk to that person as a human being. And if they're a human being with a heart and compassion and empathy, then they'll understand, maybe they'll get it. They'll, they'll come see, they'll see my point of view. If they don't care because all they care is about power and about being famous or about using a Boyle Heights as a seat to become mayor and then governor, which sometimes happens. Sometimes uh, Boyle Heights tends to be the place where people who really just want a career in politics want to use this community because they go, oh, if nothing happens, it doesn't matter. Uh, people hold them accountable. Um, you, you know, I. There's a lot of things I can say publicly, but I won't because it's political. This question is very political. So I'm going to be very uh, proactive and say, you know what? Uh, try to speak to them, write letters, you know, meet with them. Now, if they refuse to do those things, then that's when you protest. That's when you also find out who are they really for, you know, uh, who supported their campaign, you know, because uh, there are people who have a lot of the contractors supporting their campaigns and that's how they win. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of dirt I know about so many things that I, I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> so. Very mysterious. Uh, what do you think, George? Well, I think the key is what I would call non-electoral democracy. One of the things about the Boyle Heights population is that it is heavily undocumented and it is heavily youth. So it contains a very large proportions of population that cannot vote. 
and at least in the given the current political moment, cannot and will not be able to vote anytime soon. Um, and that means the only way to hold uh, politicians accountable in Boyle Heights is to make sure that it's not about the vote. Um, it's about protests. It's about showing up. It's about uh, Spanish translations. It's about saying we are residents of this neighborhood and we have a right to services. We have a right to representation. We have a right, even if we are not citizens, even if we're not legal, even if we are under 18, you have, you have to listen to us. That means what matters most is what happens between elections, not actually during elections, because every indication is, is that the percentage of voters in Boyle Heights is gonna remain low compared to other city council districts for a very, very long time. So I think of what happens between elections, the, the role of, um, uh, not, uh, of, of community organizations uh, like Mothers of East LA, for example, taking into account uh, organizing through parishes, through other entities um, of getting something done because it's good for the community, but not, not like the CSO used to be, which is to try to sign up people to vote because that's gonna change much more slowly in present day Boyle Heights than I think um, it, it did in the 20th century. Josefina, uh, this is a question from an audience that I think uh, I'd really like you to answer. It's a controversial question. Uh, someone is asking, how do we talk to the people in Silver Lake and Echo Park who have appropriated the East Side name? Oh. For the record, they are not, those are not East Side neighborhoods. This no, yeah, exactly. That's a good question because everyone calls uh, the Silver Lake and Echo Park East Side. I'm like, that's as far as East as you'll go, really? You know, uh, yeah. I think we need to, to do campaigns around saying, no, we are the East Side. Come, you know, it's funny because I want people to discover the East Side, but I don't want them necessarily to move here, you know? <laughs> so I basically feel like, uh, you know, be more adventurous and know that like your geography is off. You just got here. So for you, that's the East, but that's not really the East. Yeah, no, that's a very, I, I, we can do a play or a couple shows. I think I think bumper stickers at the very least. I don't know. That's a very good question. That's, yeah, PSAs. We need some PSAs yeah, on that. Right? Like, <laughs> no, funny sketches can't, or maybe call it the real East Side. You know, maybe do a, a web series. No, they just shouldn't call it the East Side. That's just yeah, they just shouldn't. But call it, you know, yeah. There should be a, there should be a law. But uh, but it's actually it's it, it's interesting though because again it goes back to that idea of of. Uh, but they are like cultural cousins, right? I mean, these neighborhoods, are they like first cousins or they were first cousins of, is that, is that a fair statement? They're rich cousins though, they're rich cousins. Yeah, they're rich cousins. They're like the, the, the primo hermanos that you kind of yeah, hate. Yeah, the ones that don't, they, you know, they don't want to take ownership of you. The ones that are like, oh yeah, yeah, those are my cousins. <laughs> All right, let me see what other questions we have here. Uh, let me, this is another question. Uh, uh, you know, George, can you talk about mixed industrial residential use in Boyle Heights? I mean, we're obviously Boyle Heights is like, close to, you know, where the art galleries were moving in and before they vacated, uh, that was one of those areas. And then when you get close to Vernon, you, you kind of have that. Can you talk to me about that? And also uh, there's, in, in some parts there's been real concerns about pollution related to those, those interfaces, right? Absolutely, it's, it's the areas that I think are most uh, susceptible both to gentrifying forces, but also to uh, ongoing pollution. Um, one of the things I think about, in, you know, that that Boyle Heights has experienced is because it experienced the freeways right through the middle of Boyle Heights, it's always going to deal with air pollution. 
I mean, until we're all driving electric cars, uh, the freeways are going to pollute Second Street, which is right next to the Second Street School, which is right next to the freeway on a consistent basis. And that school and other schools in Boyle Heights tend to have asthma records, which are much higher than anywhere else because of the way they built uh, those places. So what you have is for those communities that live near um, Vernon or, or the flats, uh, you have a real high potential for, for pollution and you have uh, you know, the, the development of organizations, again, like Mothers of East LA that, that have fought that. At the same time, those large uh, industries that, that have been disappearing from Los Angeles also are ripe for other kinds of uses. So the art galleries have moved out, but people tell me that there's now uh, studios moving into the flats, right? Uh, there was improvements in Aliso Village, improvements in terms of mixed class areas, and all of a sudden it became safer to set up in, in uh, the flats area. Um, you know, I, I worry a lot, uh, if, if I'm worried about gentrification in Boyle Heights, I'm worried about the Sears Tower and what happens in that neighborhood, what happens at Riverwood, because those areas have served as a kind of buffer for the rest of Boyle Heights and they're south of the five. So if people don't watch what's going on there in terms of how they are developed, whether they're both protected, uh, you, you've got a lot of things going on it's very easy to take your eye off of those places, but those are the areas most susceptible to, to change and also to exploitation. Um, you know, it's one of, you know, ironically, one of the reasons um, you might have young people move into Boyle Heights, but not necessarily families, is because the air is polluted and the land is polluted in those areas. Like, you know, they're going to have to do some major uh, cleanup the Exide plant that put right. polluted soil all over the southern part of Boyle Heights kind of came out of Vernon. Um, you got to really think about uh, how those areas are going to be developed, um, and uh, you know, I think I think that's that's the, those right. are the next places to really look at. Oh, speaking of kind of that sort of demarcation between the young people kind of moving in and kind of the older people, uh, several years ago, one of our really talented young reporters at the LA Times, Brittany Mejia, wrote a story. Uh, they ran on the front page, and it was uh, she. She basically bounced uh, all night from two bars. One was Eastside Love, a, a wine bar, that you know catered mostly to you know young you know Chicano professionals and others. And then there was Las Palomas, which was literally right next to it. it was a cantina. You know, sort of like a an old school cantina. You know, men with you know you know ten gallon hats. You know, just drinking you know cheap beer. Uh, I know, Josefina, that you've you've been in both of them. Um, but I kind of wonder as, as well as changes and more young Latinos move in and more young Latinos move in and Latinos with actually higher means, is there, do you feel Josefina like there's a, a risk of, of kind of a different kind of segregation in Boyle Heights where you have, you know, one of the things, you know, she noticed, you know, and I've noticed about those two bars is that people from Eastside Love will sometimes kind of go, you know, slum in Las Palomas and they'll hang out there and it kind of feel kind of cool and you know, dangerous, even though it's not. It doesn't go the other way around. The people from Las Palomas, the working class Mexican and uh, Central American immigrants, they don't, they don't go, they wouldn't dare go to like uh, Eastside Love. And it's not because, because they're barred from going, it's because they just wouldn't go. It would, they wouldn't feel comfortable going that. Are we, is there any kind of risk of eventually? It's expensive. I mean, for some people, they'll tell you it's expensive. And then the other thing too, is if you're an immigrant 
you don't have any kind of experience with wine because wine itself, the culture of wine is very elitist. Uh, obviously, a lot of ethnic people like me, you know, I've tried to give wine classes at Casa Fina to make people make wine very accessible to immigrants. That you'd be very intimidated to go to a wine bar and not know what to order. And a lot of people, especially like my parents, they do anything not to be humiliated, you yeah. know. So my parents never got to go to the, you know, I had to drag them to the theater. I had to drag them to a nice restaurant because they just didn't want to be humiliated. You know, when you're, when you're a working class person and you don't have the opportunity to get an education or be, experience a lot of cultural activities, you just don't know what to do. And it's very scary. And you don't realize that, you know, like when you grow up in this country, because you, you know, you've, you're exposed to a lot more opportunities to interact with high culture, whatever. But if you've never had that, you just kind of stay away from that. So yeah, that's how come there isn't usually. And obviously, you know, like people like me that are very much Mexican American, that are bilingual, bicultural. I feel I feel very much at home at both because yeah, it's actually a cool place now. And there's you know Mexicano rancheros, whatever. Like you know, and I, I yeah, yeah. So, but so, there really are, be... so there are Mexicans who can vacillate between two and feel right. like fine. But then there are people who are who are Chicanos, Latinx, who maybe are not bilingual, bicultural, really fully, and maybe that's also why they wouldn't go. They feel intimidated, like oh, you know, like so. You spoke about wine, by the way, like the only, speaking of the Jewish history in Boyle Heights, the only wine my mom ever drank was Manischewitz. That's it. So, and it, it's interesting also because I think a lot of our parents, if you, if I told my mom, hey, do you want to go to some restaurant or want to go somewhere in El Monte? They would say, oh yeah, yeah. Um, certain, certain parts of even the Sangro Valley, but if I mentioned certain parts in the West Side, all she had to do was hear the name and she wouldn't say, I don't feel comfortable going, but she wouldn't want to go. She would say, no, 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 amigo, no, no. And it, it is interesting how our parents and our grandparents often kind of pick that up, a sense that they don't belong. And, and George, that is something that a lot of people who grew up in Boyle Heights have a sense of, right? That does, the sense of like, this is our place because maybe we're not accepted elsewhere or not, it's not as easy to get embraced elsewhere. Has that, do you think, made Boyle Heights a place that people kind of hold on to more fiercely? Like, this is, this is mine. This is my home. I'm going to fight for it. Absolutely. There's countless stories of immigrants from all groups going elsewhere in Los Angeles and feeling like this is not my place. I'm going back to Boyle Heights. I'm going to feel connected. I have a, a wonderful story from um, a Jewish activist from the 40s who you know, used to say we never dumped our ashtrays in Boyle Heights. We went to the west side and dumped our ashtrays because they, we knew they'd be cleaned up there. We couldn't, we couldn't say that about Boyle Heights. So we were very careful about you know, what we did in the community. The one thing I was gonna to add to the last question, however, is that we may be in a different Los Angeles at the moment in which Boyle Heights is going to give more of an opportunity for the Mexican American who may not be bilingual to feel more comfortable with recent immigrants. The, the direction in the other way, and that's with uh, fruteros, and that's with uh, people selling elotes, and that's with mariachi. That's with the whole culture in Boyle Heights, which doesn't require you to necessarily step through a door, but it's an outside public culture of immigrant, mm -hmm. uh, immigrant Boyle Heights, immigrant East Side. Um, I think that in Boyle Heights, as opposed to other areas where there's lots of immigrants, more Mexican Americans feel comfortable in kind of absorbing the new immigrant in terms of learning Spanish, in terms of um, connecting 
with their parents' generation, right? With, with a different kind of possibility of the future of Los Angeles, i.e. the assimilation just doesn't work in one direction. It can work in two, but it needs a, 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 a canvas that is welcoming in both directions. And so I have a feeling that Boyle Heights is gonna start playing that role more often that people will say, this is a community that I know has a deep history, but also, again, if it maintains recent immigrants who are bringing the latest of Mexican and Central American culture, this is a place I can connect with them. These are places that I can, I can negotiate and learn. So it's not, it, it, we, we tend to think that the assimilation only works in the other direction. I have a feeling that 21st century Los Angeles is gonna be working in very different ways. I said, I also think that as more Latinos and Chicanos uh, gain pride in, in our culture and especially in our indigenous cultures, like uh, a lot of the food that we used to eat in Mexico, a lot of the, the like we're decolonizing a lot of what we, how we perceive culture. And so I think we're also much more weight opening, really accepting of immigrants because we, we, we really, I, understand things in a bigger context. I remember when I was growing up, there was a little bit of a shame, you know, that we were undocumented or immigrants. And I think now we realize how much cultural currency immigrants bring in culinary, but also musical expression with mariachis. So, and, and part of the reason, you know, we really are holding on to Boyle Heights is because we feel that, that as artists, especially, that we've added cultural currency to this community. So it's like, we made it cool. You're not going to kick us out. We made it cool. This is our hood, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, let me have a question from the audience. Uh, George, could you talk about district mapping? Does CD14 suffer because of the focus on downtown LA? I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about Boyle Heights and maybe the attention that it, it gets that other east side neighborhoods doesn't. But do we lose out because of attention to downtown LA and, and its issues, for good or for bad? It depends on the politicians and it depends on the way it's set up. And it hasn't always lost. In fact, and sometimes, and I think Ed Roybal is a good example, uh, Boyle Heights gained by the fact that uh, he had in his district, the downtown area. And he, he, he would you know, have a certain kind of power because of the downtown area that he it would pay off in Boyle Heights. That that district also had, uh, by the end of his term, uh, more African-Americans that had Mexican-Americans. So Ed Roybal was a kind of uh, uh, pathbreaker in terms of multiracial coalitions, political coalitions. He needed, he knew he had to serve an African-American population at a time in which there were no African-American city council people uh, in Los Angeles. That the district's been shifted, right? So now, you know, there was a certain point in which we lo he lost, um, after he left, they lost the South LA communities and they ended up with Eagle Rock as an add-on. And, and just to give you some sense of that, that meant that someone um, had uh, more voters in Eagle Rock than they did in Boyle Heights, even though Boyle Heights had twice the population of Eagle Rock. Right. So, so this is really the configurations of that district. Uh, both the, the, the boundary lines matter, but so does the way that the politician utilizes those districts and the, the amount of power that they can bring either to the community or to themselves. And I think we've seen examples of both. Got it. You know, I think, is there anything, you know, I, you know, this is a question that I asked as a reporter. Uh, 
uh, is often like, is there a question that I did not ask? But actually, Josefina, let me ask you, you know, you have experience in this. Is there a question that you would want to ask George or that you would want to ask yourself, you know, an answer? Well, you know, I think George and I have been on so many panels together and talking about Boyle Heights. I kind of feel like I, I'd have to ask private questions, which I am not going to. That'd be the only thing I, could <laughs> ask that I don't know about. Like, um, no, but you know what? The question I would like you to ask me or I'm going to answer right. is, so what are you working on now? Or tell us about remembering Boyle Heights, you know, how uh, Boyle Heights has been my muse, right? Right. I, I, I did a show with Corky Dominguez uh, and we created a show called Remembering Boyle Heights. And it's part of the Boyle Heights Museum, which uh, we're the founders of, George and I. We started this series of exhibits at Casa 0101. And we did a show where we told the history of Boyle Heights from the Tongba, from the, uh, and again, there's a debate as to how you pronounce it. So I won't even pronounce the indigenous group that, you know, is, yeah. Anyway, the, from the indigenous people who lived here. <laughs> right. To, uh, to right after the housing covenants, covenants were broken and uh, Edward Roy Ball, became councilman and challenged them. And so basically his story. And then, the, um, so we did part one, we filmed it. We're gonna do a documentary mm -hmm. and we're gonna do part two, which is called Remembering Boyle Heights, part two. And we're gonna tell the story of Boyle Heights from the Sutsu riots to the very present. And we're actually looking for people who have amazing Chicano stories, uh, Chicano history stories in Boyle Heights, anything that's really incredible because we're, we're gonna start a museum called the Boyle Heights Museum, like the actual one. We're working with a, a politician uh, to, to actually have a, a real museum so that it could be a center for social justice. And, and we can tell the history of this amazing place because I think the rest of the world can learn from Boyle Heights. I think George was saying how this is a community that's made history in the art world because it's the first time a community has fought back against art galleries. It's made history in the world because it's an example of what you can do to, to really empower our community and to fight back. Uh, right, Jordan? Hey, <laughs> George taught me so much. That's okay. I'm like, I, I, you know, I become a little expert only because I've read his book and you should get his book, by the way. Yeah. Get his book. Uh, yeah, so I'm so we're working on that. Remembering Boyle Heights Part Two, and people could get a hold of us at, at Boyle Heights Museum at gmail.com. And they can send us information for what stories should we dramatize that are very important to the history of Boyle Heights, because we're going to be producing a show hopefully uh, next year once theaters are back, you know everything's back to normal hopefully. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Uh, okay. I'm working on obviously so many of my own projects, but that's something you know that Boyle Heights has had such an influence because there are so many amazing stories that have happened here. There are yeah. so many incredible stories, especially about groups of people intermixing, you know, like intermarriages, like it's, it, it is the, the Ellis Island of the West. And, you know, my goal would be that Bull Heights gets recognized as the Ellis Island of the West. I appreciate that, Josefina. One, one last question and, and for, for you, George. I mean, the title of your book is Can Boyle Heights Save America? So, you know, I'm going to put you in a tough spot because, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of time, but actually can Boyle Heights save uh, America, you know, even metaphorically? And, and if so, precisely what, how, in what way? Can a place like Boyle Heights do that? I think people have to look at the nature of belonging and citizenship. And I mean citizenship in a very broad sense in Boyle Heights. How does democracy work in Boyle Heights? How have people come together to work across differences to make things happen? How have people protected the community, right? Um, how are people who don't have legal status right now incorporated into a non-electoral democracy? 
through Mothers of East LA, Homeboy Industries, uh, how are entrepreneurs able to emerge from the neighborhood and end up with businesses in the neighborhood, right? How has that happened over time? How does it continue to happen? And what forces keep that from happening? This is a country that is having a crisis of democracy. They don't know how this works. They don't know how neighborhoods can make a difference. And I think there's a lot to learn from Boyle Heights and Boyle Heights history in terms of how do you make democracy actually happen with working class people, with poor people, with, um, you know, in, in community that what a lot of people would say, well, there's, you know, the, the leaders would say there's disposable people there. We can move them around. We can ship them. This community is not only resilient, it has been a, a leader in forcing democratic practice onto Los Angeles and onto California. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that as we try to work out nationally through a, through a crisis of democracy. You can learn from Boyle Heights. Yeah, it's kind of amazing for me in your book, reading your book. It's, 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 it, this is a community where, where in some ways it wasn't a total melting pot because as your book points out, there were neighborhoods that were like 80% of one group. But over, over the years, over the decades, these different communities, whether it's Russian Moroccans, the Jews, uh, the, the Mexican-Americans, uh, the African-Americans, they actually taught each other. They were actually like their own best teachers, right. you know? And, 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 they, and they didn't melt. I mean, they, they, they each took incredible pride in their own backgrounds. And they, they utilized that to make connections and coalitions with others. Yeah. So rather than melting away, they actually were fortified in their culture and in what they brought to each other. Yeah. So I think to me, that's really the story of Boyle Heights. Yeah, it's well, thank you for having, you know, for, for being here. I, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to, you know, thanks for joining us. Stick around for a few minutes. We're going to have a uh, drop in for a live chat on YouTube. Thanks to Josefina. Thanks to uh, Professor Sanchez. Thanks for, uh, for uh, former supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky for the introduction. Thanks to Zocalo for, for ha having this event. And thanks for all uh, you audience members, whether you came from Boyle Heights or, or elsewhere, for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we, I hope that we all learned uh, a, a lot from this.